Amen. Good morning, everybody. How we doing, church? Well, I have so many things to say. I will not give you a slideshow of my vacation. I know that you are all excited for me to go and get away, and then I'm like, wait, why? <laughs> John did a great job. I was, man, uh, did John just knock it out of the park last week? Did so good, so good. And you know what I love? You got the gospel three times. You got it in the intro, you got it in the middle, and you got it at the end. So if you missed any part or you dozed off, which you never would because that's other churches, you heard the gospel three times. That was so good. Um, I watched it when I was, I don't know what state I was in, but I watched it in another state, and it was fantastic. So just grateful that we have godly men that can come and communicate God's word uh, when I'm away or other people want to come and learn and continue to preach God's word. So excited about that, grateful for that. Um, we are continuing our conversations with Jesus. Uh, we've been working through that for the last few weeks. We're going to keep going on, and we're in a fun one this week. But I was like, where do I go? Where do I go this week? What, what's going to help understand what's going on? So I was thinking about the idea of, of humility and what that looked like. And so two years ago, I was asked to, uh, I was voluntold, that's probably a better way to do it, voluntold to go get diagnosed to see if I have dyslexia. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a great way to start a conversation. So I went and did that, and it's a fascinating and completely frustrating experience. They lock you in a room for, uh, if you're a kid, they do two days. If you're an adult, they do it for eight hours straight, and they just test you nonstop. And the idea is this. Everyone has a way that their brain uh, processes information, how it goes through your brain, how it connects to different parts. And what they're trying to do is figure out if there's disconnects in how you process information. And so really what they're trying to do at the end of the day is they're trying to create a log jam in your brain to figure out if there's a hiccup someplace in how you process whatever data you're looking at or receiving or whatever. And so we went through the, the process, and I remember I got to one point, they were doing this one test, and I got to the point where all of a sudden, my brain started locking up. And I'm like, I can't do this. Now, normally, when you can't do something, you just do something else, right? You're like, avoid frustration, find another way around. Well, this process doesn't allow you to do that. They press and press and press. And so where you would once just kind of sidestep how you would do something, you don't get to do that. And I remember in that moment, feeling like I, I, I was broken, I was messed up, I had no control, that I didn't, I didn't have the power to do something as simple as move some shapes around on a board. And there was this moment where it was just like overwhelming. To be perfectly honest, if we're being just you and me here, I started getting kind of emotional. I'm like, I can't think. And I say that not because I need your pity. Um, that, that's not why I say it. And it's not to make an excuse for why I can and can't do things sometimes. Though you may watch me like, why can't he read that word? Well, I apparently do have dyslexia. <laughs> and to boot, they're like, and you've got some ADHD. So if you've ever wondered why I talk the way I do, the other part of that makes sense. But there's this word that kept re, uh, reverberating in my mind, and it was humbling. It was humbling to be in a moment where we think highly of ourselves all the time, don't we? Like, I can do this or I can do that. And then to realize the, the, the frailty of your humanity and that there's something that's just wrong, it's not working. It puts you in a state that you're so humble, you're like, I just can't do this. And you may be asking, why are you sharing all of this right now? Um, I, I share this because of this. 
I, I think that's kind of where we're going to land today as we're talking about the idea of humility. And, and where we are today is going to revolve around faith. It's going to revolve around faith, but humility comes out of that. And so we're going to see two people today, not just one. So the conversation revolves around two people. And I was just going to do the one person. But then there's this interruption in the middle of the story. And I'm like, ah, I can save that for another day. It's, it's totally separate. But the more I studied it, the more I realized that these two stories are completely intertwined. They deal with the same issue, but they show that they're coming from very different points of view. And so we see that he's talking to two groups of people in this moment. And so if that's the case, that means he's talking to two groups of people now here today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 today, 21 through 43. You can follow along on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible. You can use your device. If you're new and don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back. That's a gift for you. Take it, use it, read it. We would love for you to have God's word. But let's go ahead and read this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers from the synagogue named Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for this story. I thank you for these interactions, these conversations that you have with these individuals. Though they may be short, there's so much going on. And Lord, we see these pictures of what true faith looks like. Lord, I ask that we would have the same response 
as Jairus and the woman, that we would have this kind of faith to believe that you are the one that heals, that you are the one that raises from the dead, and you are the one that saves. If there's areas in our lives, Lord, that you want to press in today, we give you full access to press into our lives, that you would show us areas where we need to trust you more, we need to follow you, we need to bow a knee to you. And maybe for the first time we would do that, or maybe it's the hundredth time, so we know that you are good and love us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me, that if there's anything that's not from you, that you would take it from my lips, my notes, my mouth, and that I would just be a vessel used by you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so at the core, like I said, this is dealing with humility and faith. And both of these individuals are going to come to a place where there's going to have to be humility in their lives in some way, shape, or form. And they're going to experience the power of what it means to have faith in the person of Jesus Christ because of that. So we need to look at the two people in the story, and I want to break some things down because if we don't understand all the context, it gets muddy when we're trying to understand what's going on. So the first one, I want to talk about Jairus, this individual, who he is and why he's there. And it says this, that he's a ruler in the synagogue. So just right there, we have to unpack what that means to understand who he is and what he's doing and where that is. So the first question should be, what is a synagogue? If you don't have a church background, you don't know what that is. Um, a synagogue is this. A synagogue is a place where they worship that was closer to their hometown, one of their villages where they could go on a regular basis, and it was a place where they could worship God, the God of the Bible. That's where the Jewish people would go and worship God. And there's some things that took place in the synagogue when they would go there. Things like prayer. They would pray for each other. They would pray through psalms. They would pray for the community. They would pray that the, the Lord would return. They, they, all these prayers they have. They would study. They would read the scrolls. and They would study God's word. They would, they would talk about it. They would teach through it. They would, they would do these things where they go, we want to be in God's word. We want to hear God communicate to us. The other thing was is they were in community. It was a communal time where people could come together from all over the areas and they could focus their community around the worship of God and his love for them. They would spend time, they would eat, they would enjoy each other all the time. And the other thing is they would read aloud. They would read through the Torah, they would read through the commandments, they would read through the history of the Jewish people and how God had been faithful all along the way. Now, this wasn't the temple. It was different than the temple. The temple was the central place of worship in Jerusalem where sacrifices would take place, where God would dwell once a year in the Holy of Holies, and they would come and they would make offerings for all the people. So this is different from that. And what you see is as you start to look at it, it's kind of like what we do. It's, I mean, did we just pray? We, we just prayed a couple times. Right now, we're, we're going to study God's Word, Right? We're in community. We talk. We enjoy that. We go to fellowship hall afterwards, and we just enjoy being around each other. And I just read aloud God's word. So if you're thinking about what the synagogue is for the Jewish people, it's like what we're doing right now. It's the, it's the version of church that they had that they would exist in and what that looks like. Well, the other thing that we see is it says that Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. So what does that mean? What, in, what is entailed in that? Well, a lot of the rulers in the synagogues most likely Jarius was a Pharisee. He was around the Pharisees if he was not a Pharisee. So he did a number of roles that took place in that building and what would take place. So it was just the day-to-day -day stuff in the synagogue that would take place, whether that was simple things like cleaning things up, whether that was having incense, making sure that there was you know, candles or litter, things like all those things that happen, kind of like around here, there's all these things that happen that we're always doing. So he would be a part of the day-to-day -day things that happened in that synagogue. 
He would do the reading at times of the Word of God, that he would read through God's Word. He would teach at times to help us understand who God is and what he's doing and how that connects to other things. He taught the law, and then he applied that so the people could practice that out. He'd say, this is God's law. This is how we should live. This is how you should live. He would plan the service. We, you know, these things don't just happen, uh, actually. Uh, we take a lot of time to plan the services. So Mark and I will get together, the staff and I will get together, and we'll work through, like, what are we trying to do in the service? What are we going to be teaching on? What kind of songs do we want? Like, do we want to change things up? So all those things, someone has to do those. He'd do those things. We also would know that they'd be respected individuals in the community. A ruler in the synagogue was a respected person in the community. A level of power, a level of prestige that's connected to him. Most likely, he, he was well-to-do. He had a good amount of money. And they truly were a key part of the community of believers of God. Now, like I said, he's kind of like what a pastor does. He was the one who knew God's word, who understood God's word, what having a relationship with God was supposed to look like. That was his role in what he did. He would have been... Um, very righteous in the sense that he was doing all the right things, following all the things that the Bible would say of that day. He followed everything to letter so that he would show that um, he, he could please God with his life. Like, I'm doing all these things. God's going to be happy with me. God's going to be uh, excited about being in relationship with me because I'm doing all these things. And that's kind of why Jesus butted heads with the Pharisees all the time. He would be considered clean, without sin, right with God because of his actions and what he would do. Now think about this. There was one major group that was in opposition. of. Well, there's a couple, but there's one that we think about all the time. What was the name of the group of people that was in opposition of Jesus constantly? The Pharisees. So this is the, this is the crew that he ran around with. So the word was getting around. Jesus was teaching. And so they knew of him. They didn't like him. They actually wanted to silence him. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to, to at, well, ultimately they wanted to kill him. And ultimately they would have him killed. Because of what he's teaching. They didn't understand the, the reality of that Jesus saying, I need to come so you can have a relationship with God. You can only come to God through me. They didn't understand what that meant. They didn't understand that the sacrificial, the sacrificial system that they had in place was not enough to bridge the gap completely between God and man. They didn't have that. And so they didn't realize that he was going to have to become that sacrifice ultimately to die for the sins of the world. And so because of that, they didn't like his teaching, they didn't like what he was saying, they didn't like that people were following him, they didn't like that people were giving him the power and authority that they wanted rightfully for themselves as they were ruling. So they knew about the miracles. They knew about the healings. They knew about the teaching. They were circulated all over the place. And they would have known what was happening. This man knew all of this. He was not oblivious to who he was and what was going on. Yet this is where the story presses into the man's life. This is where it starts to interact with him. It turns out the man's daughter is really sick. She's so sick to the point where she is potentially going to die very, very soon if she doesn't have some kind of external help to help her in this moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced a child that's been sick or uh, a niece or a nephew or a sibling and you're with them and you've gone to the ER and you, you know you want to feel the most hopeless in the world is in the waiting room of the ER with a child. You can't do anything. You're not a doctor. You don't know how to fix anything. You know what to give them prescriptions. Your child is hurting. Your child's in trouble. And all you want to do with all of your might is make sure that, that child is taken care of, that that child will be better. And this is exactly what's happening. 
Jairus, is, he's, he's a good daddy. He's a good dad. His child is in trouble. He's like, I got to do something. I don't know what to do. I mean, think about this. A powerful man, an important man, most likely a wealthy man in the community. Do you not think that he had not pulled every string that he had possible to reach out for help? That he had people praying over them, over this little girl. That he had found any doctor they could possibly find to come in. That he, anything that he could have done, he would have utilized his position of authority and power to make that happen. But yet, nothing was working. She wasn't getting better. And so we see that he sees this huge crowd. It had gathered. He's at the end of himself. He's at the end of his rope. He's like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, what's all this commotion about? What's going on here? And then he sees that it's Jesus. What does he do? He runs to him. He pushes his way through the crowd. Falls at his feet. And he says, will you help my daughter? She's going to die. His faith was rooted in the fact that if you just laid hands on my daughter, that she would be healed, that she would be made better if you did that. That was his faith. He believed that Jesus had the power and the ability to heal his daughter. Now, now think about what's going on in this, in this situation. Everyone would have known him. Everyone would have known in, this, in the town where he was at, everyone would have known who this guy was, and yet they see him come. You're the guy that we're supposed to follow. You're the guy that sets the example. You're the guy that's showing everyone what we should be doing, and yet he comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus Christ. There's something going on here. Like he, People would go like, what are you doing? What, what are you saying? Why, you bowing at his feet, falling to his feet, it's saying something, isn't it? It puts us in a lower position. It's saying that he has authority, that he's above us, that he has more honor and power and respect than than we do. And so we lower ourselves down. I mean, think about the humility that it would take for a respected man like that to put his face in the dirt against the feet of Jesus who had been walking around in sandals in a place that did not have a good sewage system. That's what he did. He's saying, I'm at the end of myself. This man is the only one that could save my child. And I'm willing to humiliate myself so she can be healed. What he's doing, he's asking him to do something that he can't. See, he's come to the reality. I don't have the power to heal this child, but you do. Now, think about this. Do you think this is going to have an impact on his career? Do you think that maybe this might put him in a precarious situation with the other Pharisees that he worked alongside? There were others like, whoa, whoa, hey, we're against this guy. This guy's the problem. It's not helping our cause when one of us goes and bows at the feet of this guy that we're trying to shut up. He's like, I, I'm going to throw everything away. Everything's going away so my daughter would be saved. Just lay your hands on her and she will be healed. See, he understood the physical level of what was happening. 
But what he didn't know just yet is there was a spiritual dynamic to what was happening in that moment. It wasn't just a physical thing because we find over and over again that Jesus will use physical events, physical problems to highlight a spiritual need that we all have, that we all are working through. That's what he's trying to do. And that's exactly what he's doing in this particular situation. So now you got to ask, what's Jesus' response? How will he respond? So like, Aren't these the guys? that have been giving me a hard time? Aren't these the ones that have been busting my chops every time I go to a town, every time I go to a village? They're stirring up trouble. They're trying to get me to stop talking. How does he respond? He's like, well, listen, man, maybe next time you'll be nicer. Huh? Maybe, maybe you should have a little different attitude towards me next time you think about busting my chops. What does he do? All right, let's go. Oh, Jesus loves people. Jesus loves his enemies. Jesus understands that his enemies are so lost, they don't even understand they're lost. And he loves them so well that there's only one way for healing, that he is that way. And so Jesus pours out love on a group of individuals that have been nothing but a pain for him and ultimately would take him to the cross to die. That's amazing love. If you hear anything, Jesus loves people. He loves to engage and to show them the truth of God and who he is so they could see that as well and experience God at that same level. Now, I'm not going to, you know, jump over verses 25 through 34 and just get back to his story because his story is powerful. But we need to understand who's this woman? Who's the woman that we're talking about? Well, we have a few verses that explain who she is and what's going on in her life. And it doesn't take a whole lot to kind of figure out what's going on. She had some kind of bleeding issue for 12 years. We don't know exactly what it is. There's a ton of commentaries and there's a ton of guesses. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But there was some kind of hemorrhaging of some spot in her life. And she had been bleeding for 12 years and it was bad. It said that she had suffered much. See, she had suffered much physically mentally, spiritually, but also says that she had suffered much under much physicians. So she had gone to a bunch of doctors, and even going to the doctors, she had suffered through that. So all these things she's doing, like, it's not, it's not good. But then we also find out that she spent all that she had. Chances are she probably had a decent amount of money. And she's like, I got to do whatever I got to do. And now she's burning through all of her cash to try to solve this problem. To find a cure. You know what the worst part is? Not only did it not solve the problem, it got worse. Think about that. You're like, I'm going to give everything. And even if it's a little bit better, no, it got worse. Now, here's where it starts getting interesting to understand. So, from the Bible, from God's law, she would have been considered unclean, ceremonially unclean because of the law and what it says about how they practice and what they do. And there's all these ways to get clean, but because she didn't stop bleeding, she could never be clean. So she was stuck in this weird spot. She wouldn't be allowed to worship at the temple. She wouldn't be allowed to touch anybody. She would have been an outcast from friends and family and the rest of the community. Now, this is where it even gets even more bizarre. Because of that culture and how that worked, they had to announce that you shouldn't be around them because they were unclean. So they would literally walk around, and if they saw other people, they had to say, unclean, unclean, 
Don't come near me. Don't touch me. I don't want to make you unclean because of my uncleanliness. And that's the idea. If she was to touch someone and interact with somebody, she would then make them unclean. And then they couldn't go and worship, and then they couldn't be in community. Do you even understand the mental toll that would take on someone? Every time you saw a group of people, you had to pronounce it, you were unclean. I'm dirty. I'm messed up. There's something wrong with me. That's where she was. You think she was at the end of her rope? You think that she was at the end of herself? She tried everything. She had gone every place she could possibly go to get healed with no avail. Trying to heal herself in her own powers wasn't working. It was just getting worse. Well, she also saw Jesus. She saw the guy that everyone was talking about. And she thought, if I could just touch the fringe of his robe, I'd be made better. So she figured out how to finagle. I don't know how she did it. She finagled to get behind uh, Jesus and just touched the robe. That's, that's all she was trying to do. She's like, if, if half of what they say about him is true, I'll be healed. I'll be made clean. I'll be right. He'll solve my problems. All this shame and guilt and rejection and isolation from community. He can solve all these problems with just the touch of his robe. And I love what happens. He touches the fringe of the robe, and it wasn't like, and progressively over the next month, she started feeling better. Later that week, she's like, hi, I think this is working. Later that evening, she's like, I, 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 no, immediately she was healed. That's the power of God. There was no lag time. Immediately she was healed, the, the blood dried up, and she was, she was clean. And I love this, that Jesus like whips around, he's like, who touched me? Uh, that would be a scary moment in my mind if, like, the God of the universe is like, you! <laughs> and, and I love, the disciples are like, uh, teacher, <laughs> you're surrounded by lots of people. Everyone's touching you. Which one specifically? <laughs> and they didn't know, but he had felt power go out of him. And it wasn't like he had less power, but there was power that he had given out. I'm sure he had felt this hundreds and hundreds of times as he healed people from town and village and village and village all the time. That that's what happens when you touch by the living God. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. He's looking around. Where is that person? Where are they? And I love it. As she sees it, she's like, oh no, the jig is up. <laughs> I got to figure something out here. And she says that she goes to him to tell him everything with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Well, I got two reasons. One, I believe in that moment she, you know, she, she truly understood who Jesus was. She felt the power of God. She was touched by the Son of God. She had realized in that moment that something happened spiritually and physically all at the same time. It's like, I am now talking to God. That's scary. If you don't think that'll be scary, that's scary. He's God. He, he is over everything. The second thing is what she understood that what she did would have made Jesus unclean. Like she got it. She's like, I'm supposed to yell unclean. I'm pushing my way through a crowd. Who knows how many other people she touched in the process, but people are getting unclean. Well, this is what I love. Jesus is bigger, stronger, and better than our uncleanliness. There is nothing that he can't handle. And what I love is that it, 
Jesus isn't made unclean by other people, but when people touch Jesus, Jesus makes them clean. That's the power of God. It's different. And verse 34 is so amazing and powerful. It says, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let me be clear. It wasn't the robe that healed her. It wasn't her touching a robe that made her well. Because if that was the case, we'd cut that sucker up, put it in every hospital in the world, we just tap it as we walk by. Healed, 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 healed. There's nothing special about the robe, because how do we know that? Other people were touching him, and we didn't hear anything else about anyone else getting healed, did we? What was unique about her? It was her faith. She believed that Jesus could heal her if she just touched. She knew the power of God and knew his power was so great. He didn't even have to say anything. He didn't have to touch her. He said, if I could just touch your robe, then I'd be healed. It was her faith that healed her. It's interesting, as I was doing the study uh, on the word healed, it's, uh, it's sozo. That's the word. It's a Greek word. You see that on the screen. Oh, yeah, so there it is. Sozo. It's the Greek word that has two meanings. A lot of times we see that uh, there's multiple meanings of words all the time in the Bible, and the Bible uses them in specific ways because it's kind of like it plays off the word all the time, and that's the beauty of God's word. It's so rich and it's so deep with so many layers that what we see is that, yes, she was so-so healed physically, right? But then it can also mean to be saved. So what we see is that she's not just healed physically, that she is saved spiritually in that moment as well. And so these two things are happening in conjunction, especially as we're talking about the idea of a physical problem and a spiritual problem. That's what's happening in this section. Now, we're not at the end of the story because we've got to get back to Jarius, right? We have to figure out what's going on. So he's thinking, all right, let's go, man. Come on, hurry it up. Have you ever been like someone who's like, you want to be someplace, and they're walking really slowly. Maybe you have a reservation at a dinner, and they want to talk to every person on the street all the way there. You're like, please, can we just get to where the ice cream line starts, and then you can talk with people? Like, whatever it takes. And they're dragging their feet. He's thinking, Jesus, you're dragging your feet. Come on, we got to get there. She's not doing well. She's going to die. And then the unthinkable happens. One of, the one of the people from the ruler's house shows up and is like, I'm sorry. She didn't make it. She's gone. We thought she was going to hang on, but she, she couldn't. Your daughter's dead. Let the teacher go back to doing what he can do. He deals with living people. Just let him go. And I love that Jesus is talking to the woman and he's listening to this thing play out. It's like, oh, hold on. I am not deterred by this change of events. This change is nothing, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, it's just going to let me highlight how amazing and great and powerful I truly am. And he just, he kind of just, he looks over and he says this in verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. Faith drives out fear. At times, we make things more complicated than we need to, don't we? We do it all the time. We, we overcomplicate what God is doing. And, and I love what's happening here. He's like, he didn't say, oh, go do this, go do that, go make that. Hey, don't fear. Just believe. That's how it is when it comes to faith in Christ, that we just believe. We don't do anything. 
He does the stuff. Our faith is in him and his ability and his works. That's the big idea, is that that's who he is. He's like, don't make it harder than it needs to be, people. Don't heap up stuff on, oh, how do, how do I get saved? Well, you got to do this and you got to do that. No, you need to believe. It's coming to a place where we're at the end of ourselves, where we are taking on a place of humility. I love that it's the, the power of God comes from believing in him, not letting the circumstances or the situations of the moment make us doubt Jesus and his power because it's not based on our ability. We have to keep telling ourselves that. It's not on our ability. It's on his ability and trusting him to do the impossible. So he goes back. This is crazy scene that's busted out. People are crying and wailing. And in that culture, that's a common thing. It still takes place today. To the point where they would have professional mourners come. That's, that sounds so weird. Like they would come and they would, like if you didn't have people to wail and mourn for you, we can provide that service. And they come and they would cry and they would wail to show the great loss and how sad they truly are. And so they're all there and they're doing this thing. And Jesus walks in and he says, hey, hey. What's the, what's the deal, everyone? Why is everyone acting this way? It's okay. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And it says that they laughed at him. Really, a better translation is they mocked him. You have no idea. We see death all the time. She's dead. She's not living. You're being rude and insensitive and uncaring, Jesus. Like, why would you do that to the parents? You don't even know who you are. We thought you were this great teacher. You're so dumb. He's like, okay, uh, you three come with me. The rest of you get out. Mom and dad, come on in here. Just takes charge. And then he goes in, and then he takes the little girl by the hand. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. According to the law, you can't touch dead people. That would make you ceremonially unclean. And once again, we see that it's not Jesus who's made unclean, but something amazing happens to this young girl. He's not, Jesus is not infected by our uncleanliness. But we are infected by his righteousness. And that sounds weird, and it might sound a little negative, but it's true. He makes us righteous. We don't make him dirty. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. Jesus is reaching out to touch you. Because he loves you to make you righteous, to heal you. And he says, little girl, rise up. And just like the last story, immediately she gets up and starts walking around. You know, it's interesting as I was studying this. Uh, the woman was bleeding for how many years? This is a quick quiz. Twelve. The little girl is how old? Weird coincidence, huh? I don't believe in coincidences because I have a sovereign God who rules all things. That there are these two events that are coinciding together that two people have had to engage in something for 12 years that God is going to solve at the same time on the same day? No coincidences. Our God is extremely purposeful. Everything has a meaning and everything is meant to communicate the truth of who he is to us. God is the God who makes people clean and God is the God who raises people from the dead. Everyone's amazed. He's like, hey, give her some food. I like that. <laughs> Feed her. <laughs> She's been dead. She's alive. She's probably worked up an appetite. So the question is, okay, what does all this mean? 
What do we do with all this stuff? Like I said before, these two stories are intertwined. They're connected together. And it's going to show us something from the physical world, and it's going to show us a symbol or a picture of the spiritual world that we can understand today. So each of these people represents a group. So there's two groups. There's two people. There's two groups that are represented. They each have to walk the same road. They just take a different road to get to where they are. Jarius was a man who looked clean and right on the outside because of his relationship with God, because he did all the right things. He worked in the synagogue. He was a respected man. He taught the law. He lived it out to a T. His life represents the fact that you cannot work or earn your way into God's kingdom or into his favor. It's by doing religious things. It's the thing that Jesus would press against the Pharisees all the time. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing things that bring God glory and honor. That's not what I'm talking about. We should strive to live a life that reflects God, right? Absolutely. But if that becomes your mode of salvation, it doesn't work. Because if I can do all the things that God requires, why do I really need God? I can do, I, I, look at me, I don't, need, I don't need a sacrifice, I don't need a savior if I can do it on my own. If, and if you do that, what does it create in you if you can meet all those needs? Pride. It creates pride. I'm great. Look how great I am. That's what it does. It creates pride in your heart when you do that. So we see that he represents the religious people that think that by working for, working out in works that you can get your salvation and get to God. That's what that represents. Now the woman represents those who are looking everywhere else and trying to solve problems in their own power, in their own ability. That They find the power within themselves to do the things that they need to do. That I'm going to go in different areas. I'm going to seek out different religions. I'm going to hit all these dead ends in life. Trying to find the healing, the peace with God that I truly desire and want. But we see that as she pursued this way of finding peace with God, what happened? It got worse. You ever, you ever try to like solve your own problems and your own power and it starts going sideways? It's like when a, when a small child like knocks over like a thing of mustard or mayo in your kitchen, like, I help, and they just smear it around. You're like, you are not helping. You are making this way worse. Please stop helping. And then they touch every cabinet on the way out. Like, no! That's what it's like when we try to do this in our own ability. This is what it's like when we try to do that. And so no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't. Both of them wanted the same thing, peace and healing with God. And both of them went in different ways to find it, but they both failed is the point. Neither of them were able to do it. And the big point is this, that they both had to come to a place of laying down their pride in humility to getting healed. And that healing only came through the power of Jesus. They could not do it in their own ability. They needed someone greater to heal them. See, that's called humility. The flip side of the coin of humility is pride. It's saying, I can do it in my own. I am strong enough. I am good enough to do it. I can heal myself. I'm good. I don't need help. I don't need anyone to help me. And I certainly don't need God to help me. That's pride. That's exactly what was happening in the Garden of Eden. We can be gods to ourselves. Sweet. Don't need God. I can be my own God. That's what they were trying to do. See, humility leads to faith because they're both saying the same thing at the end of the day. Humility is saying that I can't in my own power. You come to the end, you don't have the ability. So, humility, can't do it on my own. Well, what is faith saying? 
I have to put that faith to get done in someone else. They both say the same thing, that my own works won't allow me to do it. I can't get to the point that I need to get to. Because here's the thing, and I want you to this. There is no grace without faith, and there can be no faith without humility. Until you realize that you can only come to Jesus with your brokenness. You cannot find the faith to believe in someone else. And if you don't have faith to believe in somebody else, you can't receive the free gift of God. See, this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that we are broken and lost because of sin, the sin that Adam and Eve committed, the sins that we've committed. We are riddled with sin. We are unclean before God the same way the woman was. We don't have any ability to do anything in our own power. That because we're sinful, everything we touch becomes sinful. We spread that sin all over the place, don't we? Look at the news. Read a paper. It's everywhere. And Jesus understood that and came to earth to live the life that we couldn't live, to become the sacrifice for us because we had earned death because we have rebelled against God. We rejected him when we don't listen to him, when we disobey him, when we do things on our own ability. We sin against God. We say, we don't need you to the God of the universe. And Jesus said, I will come. I will take your punishment for your sin. I will put it on myself. I will go to the cross. I will die on the cross for you. And then, just as he beats God's wrath, he absorbs the wrath that we deserve. He does this other thing, which is what we saw, that he lays his hands on us and gives us his righteousness, like we talked about in the story earlier. And because of that, he makes us clean and in right standing with God. That The wrath has been absorbed. We can boldly approach the throne of God and worship him the way that we were meant to. When I was growing up, we had a lot of people that came in and out of our house. Like our house was a revolving door of people constantly in our house. And my dad was not the kind of guy that just let anybody in the house. He's a big dude. Uh, that wasn't going to happen, not on his watch. And so, but we had this thing that would happen that we had all of our friends, <laughs> it's just weird, they would just show up to our house, even if we weren't there. They'd just show up, hey Earl. And he'd go in, they'd just sit and eat some food and talk with my dad and just shoot the breeze. That's weird. Now, not anyone could do that. What allowed them to go in and do that? A relationship with my dad's sons. Isn't that weird? They had access to my house and access to my dad because they had a relationship with me, my father. I'm, a, I'm the son of my father, right? So because of that, they had access, even when I wasn't there. This is what Jesus does for us. A relationship with Jesus gives us access to the Father. We can be in his house. We can be with him now if we have a relationship with Jesus. If you want to know how to have healing with God, if you want to know how to have peace with God, it comes from having a relationship with Jesus. Without that relationship with Jesus, there is no relationship with God. And the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through. And he doesn't say it to be mean or bigoted or closed-minded. He says it because it's true and he loves you. And he would not love you in a way that would cause you to go down a rabbit trail that would not lead to peace with God. I love that this talks to both groups. It talks to Christians and it talks to non-Christians. 
See, Jarius represents those that are Christians that need to start laying down those things in life. And there may be areas in your life that you are not trusting God or you haven't taken a position of humility in your heart that he is what you need. And you're trying to fulfill that peace with God through doing things or punishing yourself or heaping guilt on yourself. Whatever it may be, I don't know what it is. But it's not until we bow at his feet and say, Jesus, heal me, that he takes those things away. We have to come to the end of ourselves. And then the woman represents those who don't know God at all at this point yet. That we try all these ways to find joy and peace and happiness in our home and we'll try it. We'll even use good things to try to get there. But if it's something other than God, because it says that only God is good, as John said last week, right? It's going to fail us. I love this because it really does show the heart of Jesus, that he loves people so much that he would go and seek them out and love on them. Every pastor's got a thing that kind of drives him and makes him tick as a pastor. And none of them are bad, just like how God's made them. I have a deep desire to reach the lost because I was so lost. I mean, I, we all were, but I just, I just have this passion towards lost people that I would engage people, that I would talk with them, that I want... I just want to meet non-believers so I have the opportunity to share the truth of who Jesus is. And as we move forward, I just want you to have the same desires to share the gospel all the time. That there are lost people that don't know Jesus that are going to spend an eternity in hell. And God is calling us to go out and to take that message to him because he loves him so much. How great is our God that he would include us in the process to save lives. It is an honor and it is humbling. And I want us to go out into the world and meet our neighbors. We don't convert anybody. We don't change anybody's mind. We just bring the truth of an all-powerful, loving God that pursues people so they wouldn't be separated from him. That's what we do. My hope would be is that we hear this story, we see this play out in the story of the heart of God, that we would be encouraged to come to him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, but then we'd also take that message out to those that don't know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to come and just to, to sit under your word. Sometimes we just need to sit in one story for a long amount of time to kind of see what it looks like and how it is. Lord, I don't know who's here and where they are. I don't know if they look at Jarius and they go, that's me. I'm trying to make God happy with me by doing all these things. I'm trying to earn my salvation through all these, these religious activities. Maybe they're more like the woman who's looking everywhere but towards you, Lord. But Lord, we can learn from this story so simply that you are so good and so gracious and so kind that you pursue us and you love us. That even though we might be enemies, that you save us. Even though we may be outcasts on the fringe, that you, that you love us. Let us have faith like these individuals and know the power of the God that we serve that heals, that brings people back from the dead, that you are taking our spiritual death and making us alive in you. I love you, Jesus. I pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Amen.